Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Wow, it's been so long. Welcome, uh, welcome back to Hot and Bothered. Here we are, in, uh, in the grips of democracy itself. Oh my god, yeah. I, I feel like the arthritic grip of democracy, could we say? <laughs> I don't know if you feel the, feel the arthritis on the inside or the outside, but uh, something like that. Yeah, we're definitely uh, in an advanced, some kind of advanced stage. I don't know if it's like going to end in death or uh, decay, but, but here, here we are, nonetheless. Yeah, this is a special episode of Hot and Bothered, you know, a podcast on climate politics for the 99%. Um, this is an irregular episode, not part of a season. Uh, you know, Hot and Bothered, you know, it comes and goes, um, much like the Democratic Party's commitment to economic populism. Uh, you just take what you can get when you can get it. We too would like to lower your uh, prescription drug prices. And expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's, uh, yeah, let's just dig in. The idea, you know, is the two of us, we're just going to talk through uh, how we see the results uh, of this latest election, um, pass forward, what the hell is going on here. Um, and I think just to start, um, Kate, why don't you give me your, you know, your take on Biden's transition and, and climate in particular, what's going on with the, you know, with this building back better website, his transition website, what, what made it? What didn't, and you know what, and and all the talk of transition teams, landing teams, cabinet potential picks. Like, what, what do you see as kind of standing out and defining the moment right now? Yeah, there's been a lot to keep track of from the Biden camp since election day, really, and especially since the result was declared on Saturday. All this, despite the fact that Trump still has not conceded the election, Republicans are still doing their shenanigans slash coup slash whatever whatever you want to call it uh joe biden is the president-elect uh and yeah has been has been doing the things that president-elects do so we've had a lot of rumors for the last couple weeks and then months even about about who's going to be appointed to top posts i mean there's a lot of a lot of like speculation honestly and and as somebody somebody told me in the last couple of days, you know, people are in fact uh, leaking things to the press who might well know things, uh, whether they reflect reality sort of remains to be seen. So I, I would take, you know, those those kinds of personnel rumors with a grain of salt uh, until we until we sort of see what's up. The, the concrete thing that has come out are these agency review team announcements. And so these are sort of teams of people whose basic job is just to go in mostly to talk to non-political staff in different departments and agencies and get a kind of lay of the land that can't happen yet. So I don't, I'm not actually sure what, what they're doing now, but, but presumably whenever the GSA formally declares that the election is over, that Joe Biden will be the president, then they can go in and start talking to people and, and getting a sense. So it's a little bit unclear, like how that will relate to the people who end up being appointed to those bodies some some of those people make it on uh and it just remains to be seen and 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 a lot of them the people who who are on those teams so far are pretty low profile a lot of alums of of these agencies and a real mixed bag uh, of, of of people i think what stood out to me going through sort of combing for uh, different, uh, 
you know, corporate ties and sort of ties to dubious academic centers. There wasn't as much of that as my like more cynical brain might expect. Uh, but there are some sort of positive names, especially on things like financial regulation. There's people like Damon Silvers from the AFL-CIO. Uh, Todd Tucker is on the commerce team who has written a lot about the Green New Deal and trade. Uh, people, you know, there, there, there are good names sort of throughout, throughout the list. There is one agency in particular that is kind of filled with ghouls, I would, I would say, and that's the Office of Management and Budget, which I think bodes pretty poorly considering uh, just the propensity of that, that, that body to be a graveyard for any kind of progressive policy. I mean, Obama appointed cost-benefit czar Cass Sunstein, uh, famous for his love of nudging to that body. And it just, you know, stent, like very sort of middle-of-the-road senators complained that it just, you know, stymied progress throughout the Obama administration. And uh, so the people on that body now on this agency review team include uh, people from Lyft, Amazon, Airbnb, the sort of like worst of the Silicon Valley uh, capital capital class. And this woman, Bridget Dooling, who's a researcher for uh, the, the George Washington University Center on Regulatory Studies, Regulatory Studies Center, which is just funded to the gills by the Koch brothers and ExxonMobil, and is herself sort of a, a anti-regulatory zealot in her own way. So that that is very, very concerning. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot remains to be seen when they put their climate change plan on the website, their Build Back Better website. They scrapped out a lot of the more ambitious things that were in the platform, which had obviously itself evolved uh, over over the course of Biden's campaign. I, I'd be curious what you think, Daniel, but I, I don't place much uh, much stock in, in kind of what goes on a, a website one way or the other. Yeah, I well, 100% agreed on that, um, on, on the website question. But, the, you know, there are signals, there's tea leaves, and, it, and it's hard to know um, what what matters and what, what doesn't. I mean, I think I'll just, just to comment on the point on the landing teams, um, you know, it's interesting that we you ended up listing names for the, the OMB in particular, because um, I think as the climate movement has evolved and now everybody, in a you know, quote unquote everybody, but a lot of the folks in the climate justice world, they're proposing cabinet secretaries all across the board. You know, Sunrise and Justice Dems have a list of progressive, uh, you know, kind of uh, loved progressives to, to support various agencies. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that we now understand very well um, that it's not just the EPA. Environmental Protection Agency, not just the Department of Energy, DOE, that are going to run climate policy, but we need like a whole of government um, approach. Mm -hmm. And we know that under Obama, there were good people at DOE and there were good people at EPA. But to a large extent, that didn't really matter because the neoliberals were in charge of the economic instruments. Um, and, I, you know, I was myself kind of, I think what you were alluding to, a bit confused. I wasn't sure what to make of the fact that you had some good folks on some of the ends, canceled economic advisors, you're hearing good things. People are happy. On the other hand, you know, the OMB is a pretty important organ. And if it's being run by corporate interests, that will stymie a lot of a lot of policy. So it it, it does seem like a like a mixed bag. You even I mean, the, one thing that really stood out to me, there was somebody affiliated with Estee Lauder on the State Department landing mm -hmm. team. Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, 
almost almost incoherent uh, at, at best. And it, yeah, and in terms of the building back better website, so the the Biden administration has slimmed down their massive Biden campaign website to just four priority areas, one of which is climate change. Um, the big housing measures made the cut, which I was happy to see. One and a half million units of green housing, presumably affordable, one hopes. Uh, Four million building retrofits, of which two million housing. Um, But to me, the biggest absence, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, was the idea that 40% of the benefit of climate investment would go to frontline communities or what the Biden website called disadvantaged communities, quote unquote. That it, it would be worrying if that principle disappeared because that is the single furthest into law that climate justice has got in the United States this century. Um, it's 35% to frontline communities of cap and trade revenues in California. Now, New York State, more ambitious, all climate investment should have 35% to 40% benefit for frontline communities. Um, my sense has been that any social policy priority you would want from a kind of that that wasn't just about energy in the Biden administration would ultimately be based on that on that idea of frontline community investment, whether it's about housing, uh, schools, public transportation, you name it. So I think the climate left might have to gear up for a big fight to maintain that principle of frontline investment. Um, again, I think that's the furthest climate justice has gotten into law. And I don't think we can afford to surrender that um, basic, basic idea of how to concretize climate justice. Yeah. And I, just to pick up on something else you said there, I mean, I do think, and and I, I think this is a good a good development uh, and it's pretty mainstream across, across people who think even like passingly about, about climate change that it can't be relegated to EPA or interior or the sort of classically like environment and climate adjacent uh, bodies. And and that's reflected in the sunrise list of of 13, you know, perspective appointees and, and alternates. Uh, and even more, more sort of centrist folks, which is surprising, this like climate 21 thing uh, of, you know, mostly former, former White House and government staffers mapping out their plans. I mean, I don't love all of those plans as, as you know, someone who I think is, is to the left of, of a lot of those people. Um, but, but there is that there, there is that sort of acknowledgement, which on, on the one hand is good. On the other hand, uh, I worry a little bit, and, and we've talked a, a bit about this, Daniel, just about the pivot now in what, you know, we'll talk about this also in a little bit, but the, the pivot with a divided government, I think, can privilege a sort of technocratic approach to climate politics, which I think is worrying in, in the long term if, you know, we know we're going to need durable coalitions, durable electoral coalitions as, as a big part of that. Uh, to, you know, get decarbonization done, to do adaptation in any sort of meaningful way. And I don't think, you know, only figuring out the sort of technocratic fixes is is, is the path toward that. And I, I worry about the administration's ability to walk and chew gum at the same time. But of course, they're not, you know, doing that alone. We have We have strong movements and things, which we can talk about too. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I even worry whether the administration is walking in <laughs> in Ed Markey's sneakers. Um, this is, I mean, this is, it's not quite inside baseball, but, you know, the Climate 21 project. So if you, you know, go to climate21.org, this is, this, as Kate was saying, a bunch of Obama alums and others have put together this big menu of policies covering 11 government offices, agencies, institutes, and not one of them is HUD, Housing and Urban Development. I mean, mm-hmm. 
15% of carbon emissions are from homes alone. And then, you know, another 15% from private transportation, which you can't just do as transportation policy. You have to connect housing and transit um, always. So um, it's, you know, it's, again, speaking of just fragmentation everywhere, you have this massive Climate 21 project that's being taken extremely seriously on the inside, does not even tackle housing at all. On the other hand, the Biden administration's transition plan does have these two big green housing things. And that, I think, actually reflects probably the unity task forces that came out of the um, Bernie Biden task force. You had AOC, who's a huge green housing champion um, on them. So I, you know, and an insider only strategy doesn't make me very optimistic for a green housing agenda. On the other hand, if there is some room for the movements to get in the mix and for the for the left, then I think you do see a much more holistic project. And if anything, this is just a sign that even the best technocrats are still running a decade behind where they should be. Um, but let's let's talk about um, let's step back from this from this stuff, which is all a bit murky, and just talk about the Democratic Party more broadly. Um, you know, I think I'm sure Kate, you felt the same as I did on election night, which is like, where where is my blue wave? You know, like everything that I asked that sem- aloud. In fact, <laughs> yeah. I cried out. Where's my <laughs> I mean, it, you know, like the polls suggested a massive sweep. They suggested sweeping, you know, three, you know, Nate Silver, three quarter chance of the Democrats taking the taking the Senate, huge electoral victory, seven or eight points, popular vote uh, and so on. And um, you didn't get that. Um, maybe losing ground in the in the House. Um, you know, there's like a massive like internal battle has already sprung up. Thank God for AOC, who is, you know, saying the quiet part out loud on the on the left and just being mercilessly attacked. Um, you know, the the center of the party seems to be basically blaming defund the police for um, all these electoral failures. And we just have to note that Robbie Mook, who ran Hillary Clinton's <laughs> 2016 mm-hmm. campaign, was in charge of the House Democrats uh, campaign effort, which was a complete disaster, losing seats when they were projected to make major um, gains. And apparently, um, once again, of course, it couldn't possibly be the fault of, of, of Mook and his, his centrist allies, but must in fact be the fault of the very same folks on the ground who made sure that Biden got elected. I mean, before the dust even settled, like by, if I'm remembering this right, by Wednesday morning, uh, or at some point on Wednesday, you had this like call uh, of, of of the Democratic caucus, sort of, you know, people just lashing out in this like three hour marathon session. Uh, it's just, it's so messy and just the capacity, the lack of capacity for any sort of self-reflection is staggering on, on the part of establishment Democrats. I mean, like, just it's so clear that the only thing they ever wanted to do was confirm their priors and, and just blame the left for, for anything that could possibly go wrong. And so on the one hand, you have Democrats saying, you know, fairly establishment Democrats saying, well, Joe Biden won by a huge margin. What a great victory we've had. At the same time, we have underperformed in the House. The good thing we can we can take credit for, you know, the good thing was that we had basically no message, just, you know, stuck with these sort of broad concepts of character and unity. And we we campaigned on that. The bad stuff uh, was the Green New Deal and defund the police, which which, despite the fact that that 
Almost no Democrats campaigned on that, especially in the districts that flipped, uh, <laughs> that there's just no evidence, right? There's, there's no empirical basis to suggest that the Green New Deal or defund the police cost people their seats. In fact, the politicians who have embraced those, those movement demands have delivered, you know, vote turnout for Joe Biden. People like Ilhan Omar converted her, her uh primary campaign effort where she fought off a, a, a right-wing Democratic challenger uh, to, to knock doors for Joe Biden, despite the campaign, you know, telling people not to knock doors. They knew that would be important. So they turned people out uh, in, in a really, you know, powerful way. And now they're getting blamed uh, for for what, you know, is, is I think, pretty clearly uh, the fault of a totally unimaginative national party. And you you hate to see it. You know, you just, you simply hate to see it. You hate to see it. You look at Andy Levin in Michigan. Um, Andy Levin, strong labor champion, Green New Deal champion in a in a swing district, uh, reelected, absolutely reelected in Michigan, in the, in precisely the swing state where, um, you know, going, going centrist, caving to Republicans is just going to hasten their victory. And as, just as you said, yeah, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, um, the entire left of the party um, in Pennsylvania around folks like Nikhil Saval, Green New Deal champions, driving train out. And I got to say also, just, I mean, just because we're on the air, <laughs> the story, you know, I was I was knocking, doing some get out the vote the day of and um, the day before. On the day of, I ended up in North Philly at about 3.30 p.m. I was dispatched to, to North Philly, went to a, a dispatch center to get given some turf to knock. And the person asked me, oh, by the way, do you happen to speak any Spanish? I said, yeah, I do. And they were like, oh, thank God. You know, we, um, we've had no contact with the Spanish-speaking voters in Northeast Philly. Jesus. And uh, we just can't reach, them on, can't reach them on the phone. I don't know if they use the phone. But, uh, you know, it'd be amazing if you could go down there and, and speak to them in Spanish. I'm like, it's, it's election day. This is Philadelphia. You know, Northeast Philly, um, North Philly, Dominican, Puerto Rican communities, like, those are not people to not talk to. <laughs> until election day itself just absolutely insane and you know went and down there wonder and why joe biden underperformed with latino voters exactly and it's it's just you know and and i you know i mentioned this on twitter and and stories were like trickling in from from over the country others responded florida same thing it's just like um you know you want to like you want to attack defund the police when you have not been doing a month of door knocking in communities of color and in particular latino communities and by the way the, and the thing the biden campaign not doing door i mean to do zero risk door knocking is incredibly easy. Like you knock the door, you take six to six big steps back. You know, I did it. I probably had a million times more risk, you know, buying arugula, um, the, you know, subtle Obama joke there. Um, but, uh, then, then, you know, any grocery shopping tour are far more risky from a COVID perspective than talking to voters, you know, at a very safe distance. So it's, yeah, dispiriting. And then we're attacking the electorate. Like you, I think we were going to talk about this, and 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 I'd love to hear your your thought on this, Kate. Like it does seem that there is once again a kind of voter blaming, or at very minimum, um, using uh, using some vote totals painted in a pretty broad brush as as an excuse to now beat a hasty path to the center, where we are now meant to believe that the election result tells us that the desires of the median voter. And the desires of Wall Street and the corporate class are, in fact, all the same. Yeah, and I on the on the point of just like bashing the electorate. I mean, there's this wild dynamic that happens every four years, which is that you see this sort of like outpouring of support from 
establishment Democrats who will say, we love black and brown voters. They're the base of the Democratic Party. They delivered us wins. Yay. Like, great, great stuff. And uh, any any like slight underperformance by uh, traditional democratic bases, by, you know, voters who normally would, would turn out for, for a democratic nominee. The question isn't, you know, as, as I think it should be, you know, what, what went wrong? What did we do? You know, how could we have run this campaign more smartly and turn people out? Maybe, you know, had, had Spanish speaking canvassers, for instance, it's, oh, well, you know, people are just stupid. People are dumb, and uh, how dare they not not turn out for a Democrat? Don't they know the stakes of beating Donald Trump? And it's just it's it's astounding. It's 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 just astounding. Like the lack of of of, of self reflection um, when you know what should easily have been a, a blowout was not a blowout in any in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I shared like the the 1932 election map uh, when FDR beat Herbert Hoover. And uh, he won every state, you know, and I'm not going to say that the country is what it is in 1932. Uh, there, you know, that's a very good thing in, on many, many fronts. But uh, this should have been a blowout, right? You have a president who is, I would argue, responsible for the deaths of 200,000 people. We're in a deep recession. People have been out of work without a stimulus check. States and local governments on the brink of fiscal collapse. And Joe Biden barely scrapes by. The House Democrats underperform. I despair. Yeah, I despair. I despair on this. And I mean, I think, you know, so we don't have the precinct level results. I think the exit polls, you know, depend on the same kind of calibration, uh, statistical calibration that polling depends on. And yet the polling was unreliable, very unreliable. So I think we have to wait for precinct results to know exactly what happened. But I think we do know some things pretty clearly. Like, I mean, obviously, um, Trump got a record number of votes. Um, Trump did have some break, I wouldn't say a breakthrough, but he seems to have upped his number in a lot of big cities, including Philadelphia. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like what happened is that Biden increased margins in some sub- suburban counties as promised, but it was very narrow. Um, what I think happened in cities like Philadelphia, to be honest, it's not that Philadelphia per se won the election. I think what happened in, in a city like Philly, and perhaps this is true in the, elsewhere in the Midwest, I don't know as well, is that the left prevented a vote collapse. It held it up. And then you had some very minor swings in some suburbs that assured victory, which is a totally precarious basis on which to plan for, let's say, 2024 or even 2022. I mean, to see like a leakage of votes from um, urban areas, probably from uh, men of color to the right, um, you know, it it speaks to a very, like you were saying, a campaign that just sort of took itself um, for granted. and the other thing, as we know, is that things like the $15 minimum wage passed, uh, you know, flying colors in Florida. Now, it's not that every single state ballot measure um, the, the left won, but uh, Fox News exit polls finding, you know, 70% support for government health care, 70%, 70% support for investment, renewable energy. I mean, you do get a sense to me, I kind of get a sense that Trump as an economic nationalist who is a pretty successful politician right now. Yes, he lost that election, but he's done fairly well and has still whipped his party into backing him into whatever horrible places um, is that there is like a pretty big appetite in this country for kind of social democratic policies. And yet I don't see the Democrats taking advantage of that um, at all. And in fact, if anything, they're trying to distract from that fact, which I think should be basically the 
the foundation for all of our political analysis and strategy, including climate policy. Yeah. And, and I mean, just to forecast that forward a little bit, like Joe Biden, I think it's, it's fair to say did better than he would have if there wasn't a pandemic, if we weren't in a recession, if Trump didn't, you know, very clearly have blood on his hands. You know, Democrats have run essentially the same campaign at the presidential level for two cycles now, which is Donald Trump is bad. You don't want to vote for Donald Trump. Vote for the other person. Vote for Hillary Clinton. Vote for Joe Biden. How does that translate in 2022 or 2024? You know, I hope certainly that, that you know, we'll be uh, out of the stage, at least, of, of the pandemic that we're in now. Fingers crossed. No guarantees, of course. Certainly, you know, I hope I hope we'll be out of it by 2024. Uh, and Donald Trump will not be at the top of the ticket. What are they like? What do they say? Right? Like, what is the actual message? If it's not, we're going to beat Donald Trump. Aren't you scared of Donald Trump? Which didn't work. You know, it's not it's not as if that worked. But I just don't see anything else there. If it's not leaning on policies which are just transparently popular with with most voters and and there's just such a reluctance to to just engage with with that basic data that people do want to invest in renewable energy people do want a living wage people want housing people want you know things that make their lives better and it's a structural problem in part right democrats haven't haven't delivered things that make people's lives better for decades now. And, you know, people aren't stupid, right? People know that, you know, voting for a Democrat is no guarantee that there's going to be more, you know, that they're going to be more able to pay their rent, uh, that they're going to be able to put more food on the table. Like, that is not a clear path for for, for most folks. And, and I think, you know, the burden of proof is now on Democrats to prove that with the White House and the House, they can make people's life better. You know, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I think like so the other fact I should have should have mentioned and what you're saying is all exactly right is, you know, Republicans barely lost the popular vote on the House side, which bloom I really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to believe I'm not easily surprised, but, you know, the Democrats won the popular vote by about one percent, one and a half million votes. Maybe it's changed a little bit since I checked a couple of days ago um, in the House. Very little, which, you know, I think, you know, the na- the presidential national level polling had us believing this was a eight point nine point, 10 point majority, you know, Democratic Party country. But look at the House. It's not. It's not. And so, yeah, what are the options then? Um, White supremacy plays a huge role in the Trump coalition, obviously. So your options are to try to win back some of those voters, presumably with some kind of economic populism for the less affluent Trump base. That's option A. And then option B is just to turn out people who aren't white supremacist Trump voters in greater numbers. And I don't think the Biden campaign had much success on either of those options. Um, it doesn't seem that they made massive inroads in, you know, non-college educated whites. Um, and they didn't drive up turnout among black Latino voters, as far as we can tell. So, they're, you know, whichever your theory of the case is that you're going to take people who are used to voting, but bring them back into the fold with um, economic populism by speaking to them directly. Or if you're simply going to overwhelm white supremacist voters by driving up turnout among especially, you know, black and Latino uh, voters, probably also basically working class voters, um, again, didn't didn't do either. And, you know, I think, Kate, to your point, there is an argument to be made that Biden was uniquely qualified to sell public investment because he is a trusted, to some degree, representative of the establishment, right? Like, I think Bernie was always going to have some difficulty in saying, I'm going to deliver because he hasn't. 
And that's fine. And we know why that is. It's because he hasn't been in power. But Biden has been in power. And so at the end of the campaign, when Biden had the chance to lay out his his COVID agenda, he even abandoned the talking points he had used, I think, effectively against Bernie in the last debate of the primary. He stopped saying, I'm going to make everybody economically whole. Mm -hmm. Like his closing ads, his closing debate message was, everyone's going to wear a mask and it's going to be patriotic. Mm -hmm. We're going to listen to the science, Mm -hmm. which... The way that he talks about science is just shattering from a climate perspective, because it's like we've heard that for 30 years from the Democrats and it's gotten us nowhere. And it's like how if I mean, Biden does have did have the chance to say, like, I'm going to make sure that if people have to stay home for two weeks to get COVID under control, that they are going to get money, that the businesses are going to be supported, that no restaurant will go out of business in the next six months. Um, and he didn't. It's just so it seems so easy to do right like what is the what is what what is to be lost from saying you're going to meet you know do what what the conservative government in the uk is doing right meet like 80 percent of of wages uh you know to take the lowest common denominator of of covid responses truly uh it's just it's it seems it's right there and uh, the idea that you know it's it's not only that that he didn't say that you know but it makes the debate just so frustrating and leans into this totally partisan framing around you know quote unquote science and 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 trusting experts that just drags it into the realm of this like culture war which is insane <laughs> that that he would he would do that i mean to say that like you know we're democrats and we wear masks right it's just this totally sort of like self referential signaling to people who I, you know, I, I, I would argue it's like signaling to people who Joe Biden spends time with and, and who, you know, Democratic consultants spend time with. Uh, I don't think, you know, telling the country you're going to shut down because you trust the experts without actually making the case that they're not going to starve and, and just be out of a job because of that. It's crazy. I mean, it's, yeah, it's good. I'm glad he won. And I, you know, it, it, he did not make it easier for himself to win. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's a message for the person who gets lunch from Uber Eats. It's not a message to the the line cook or the delivery person. It's the people who go to Sweetgreen, not the people <laughs> who work at Sweetgreen. Not the people who work at Sweetgreen. And that's exactly it. And like, why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't the Democrats' core message be every single essential worker will keep their income come hell or high water? And as we're gearing up now for a season of executive actions or regulatory measures, which may be, for, which could be really good, but that's mm-hmm. not going to light the fire in the belly of essential workers, <laughs> which I don't, I don't know how I feel about rebranding the working class essential workers. Probably good. <laughs> it should stick. <laughs> um, I think it's about 40% of the workforce, something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, you just nailed it. It's, it's, the message that should have been for them turns into a message for Biden's PMC social class. I mean, the class that, you know, middle-class Joe, right, has turned into PMC Joe. And what does this then mean for climate policy? Like, that is a terrible template for climate policy. Yeah. A lot of the rhetoric from the Biden campaign about COVID just set off so many alarm bells for me, uh, as, as it did for you, and in, in, in terms of talking about science and appeals to expertise and all of this stuff that just has not worked on climate, right? I mean, we've been talking, liberals have been talking about trusting, you know, science for over a decade, you know, for, for you know, arguably more than that. And what do we have to show for it? Basically nothing. I mean, you know, 
nothing, nothing that wasn't dismantled by Donald Trump. And I, I mean, I, I, I hope it works for COVID. I, I really don't think it's, it's, it's a good recipe to try to get climate policy this time around. And I, you know, worry about just, uh, yeah, just, just what that looks like down the road. If, if that is the approach to quote unquote science, which is a sort of insane religious expression. I think we have to say a word about the the Senate. Um, and I guess I would just put it this way. Um, I don't, I'm pessimistic about winning the Senate in Georgia. Uh, I hope that we do, but I'm pessimistic just because I see a lot of swing voters who are going to be told checks and balances. And to even just vote for one Dem and one Republican for a handful of swing voters, to me is very easy to imagine and is all it would take to keep the Senate in Republican hands. But I don't know. Um, I would just add the Senate map is probably better this year than it's going to be in 2022 or 2024. Institutionally, it seems like we're on basically a glide path to ruin. Under McConnell Senate, you're going to have austerity. You're going to have low ability to implement populist policies. I don't see Biden gearing up to pitch populism, although in a second, I'll make the case for why he he should. Um, so I don't know. I, I look at the political chessboard it makes me feel very pessimistic. It makes me feel the only thing that could really break a, a kind of grim prognosis, electoral prognosis, is another uprising. And that seems plausible to me, like an OWS style uprising that takes uh, maybe something like the freedom budget as a template, where you see the, the concerns of the Black Lives Matter movement, the climate justice movement, and just kind of the needs of essential workers, and sort of fuses them in a demand for stimulus, green stimulus anti-racist stimulus. Um, that That is what gives me hope. And I hope that it comes. I think you could see something big enough to really shake up the political system, because otherwise it seems that on its own, the electoral kind of calendar, momentum, chessboard, whatever you want to call it, this is grim. Very grim. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I, I think there are little shoots of, of optimism. I mean, we're not, this is not 2008, right? You know, there Obama years saw Occupy Wall Street, saw Black Lives Matter, saw protests at, at you know against pipelines, uh, sort of uprising at Standing Rock. Uh, there, 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 there were all sorts of, of of social movements that really grew up and 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 grew a lot uh, through through the Obama years, and so I think you know those movements have only gotten stronger uh, through uh, you know since that time, and I think the left is is just much stronger than it, than it was in 2008 and much more organized and interested in electoral politics. We have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and now Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush, people who, you know, are accountable to movements in a real way. And that's really good. This is not going to be 2008 all over again, but uh, I, I, I really, yeah, I think it's going to be a big fight in order to get that to translate into what the Biden administration is doing. You know, Democrats just really have to figure out how to talk to people um, and not just talk to people, but to like deliver real, uh, real gains in, in people's lives. It's not as if, you know, just to, to say briefly, like the New Deal didn't bring about decades of Democratic control of Congress by magic. It wasn't just that it sort of, you know, delivered material gains in people's lives, which is a huge part of it. 
it also built its constituency, right? It built institutional force like the labor movement that uh, allowed it to grow, allowed it to deliver gains and, and keep its electoral coalition in place, right? And, and, and you know, I just, <laughs> that sort of like systematic thinking, I don't, I don't see from, from the powers that be in, in, in the Democratic Party. And it's, you know, just to say a, a, a sort of ideal situation for, for capital, right? I mean, they're thrilled about the, uh, the prospect of a divided government uh, because they get to, you know, root around Trump who's sort of unseemly and, and, and not great, but, you know, still have Mitch McConnell in the Senate to block any, any kind of redistribution, any kind of egalitarian policy and any sort of challenge to, to capital, um, and that's great for them. You know, the Financial Times and, and Wall Street Journal op-eds have been very, very happy about about this election, I would say. Oh, yeah. I mean, the day of, I was watching MSNBC, you know, the, the minute that Joe Scarborough called the election for Biden, they're all talking about how excited they are for divided government and about Madison, mm-hmm. you know, checks and balances, same thing on CNN. You know, it's it's insane. Um I think, you know, about the New Deal, to your point, I would go, you know, even further, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, that the New Deal government of, of Roosevelt, for its innumerable flaws, it didn't just create a constituency, it let itself be built from the ground up, right? Mm-hmm. It responded to the labor movement was striking more year after year throughout almost the entire 1930s. So strike activity escalated, right? It wasn't the thing <laughs> that you hear about now, where they're like, oh, thank you very much and for whatever you did in 1934, hiring 4 million workers to stanch the bleeding of unemployment. Now we're just going to go home. I was like, thank you. That's so nice. And I'm going to reward you with a bigger strike, actually. <laughs> okay. um, and, you know, what what FDR would have done if he was using the Biden, uh, uh, you know, Hakeem Jeffries playbook would have been would have been to say, screw you. Now I'm going to kill you. I'm going to punish you. Don't you dare go on strike. How dare you? But instead, Francis Perkins is there like, OK, let's what can we do? What can we do better? Let's try to, let's, you know, old people are, are freaking out about their retirement. Let's try to work on a social security plan. I mean, it, it is so, it's, it wasn't perfect, 0% perfect. But um, now where you, it's kind of like punishing the very constituencies that helped to get you elected is a very far cry from saying, wow, thank, thank God there's this social upsurge. Let's, let's stoke it. Let's take advantage of it. Um, so, okay. So I think, let, let me just give my pitch for what I think Biden should do. And, I'll, and I'm curious what your take would be, Kate. Um, as you said, we have to, the Democratic leadership will have to talk to people. Um, and certainly our allies uh, will have to, and I think we'll talk to people, you know, the squad, the expanded squad, Bernie, and so on. Um, so I think my pitch would be like a basically two-track presidency. Um, on the one hand, you do do these executive actions, and we're not spending the hour doing it today, but, you know, anybody can get on the internet. There's like 400 million proposals for executive actions coming out from every manner of climate group. And a lot, most of those are, are good and fine and make a lot of sense. We could debate social cost of carbon or not, what level of priority, whatever. Um, a lot of good ideas for that. That's a track that should be the quiet track. I think the loud track should be green economic populism. Just Biden should not stop campaigning. Uh, and Biden should be out there and have surrogates like the squad and Bernie out there basically doing what Bernie said he would do um, during the primary campaign, which is holding rallies all across the country, saying to voters, the Republican Party is in the way between you and a job, between you and decent health care. Um, between you and a decent retirement, um, between you and safer community uh, and resiliency and, and all that stuff that would come from massive green investment, protect you from this changing climate and ensure that you benefit from the economic um, transition. And that, you know, we have evidence, actually, 
uh, increasing evidence that elite cues matter. And certainly within party, you know, the, the Trump administration and the Republicans right now have massively driven up the percentage of Republicans who think the election was a fraud. Um, Biden and Harris, just in their debate performances, drove down support for a fracking ban among the Democratic Party uh, respondents by, I think, about 15 percent, according to to one poll. So there is I mean, my kind of line for the last year has been the biggest cultural challenge for the climate movement is for when a working class person hears the phrase green investment, they should think that's for me. And Biden could make that happen. Biden, Bernie, the squad, they could make that happen. If they spend two years talking about how green stimulus would land in working class communities and communities of color, repeating it over and over and over again, not talking about executive actions, talking about jobs, solar panels, electric buses, school retrofits, um, you name it, they do have an opportunity to change the political culture of, of climate politics and of, of, of economics in general. And I like I don't really see a path to winning in 2022. Otherwise, no one is going to vote Democrats in the midterms in 2022 for some of executive action. I mean, nobody will. I mean, like, why, you, why would you hide your climate policies? Why would you hide your economic policies? Um, so that I don't know. I mean, Trump's to some extent has done that. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I think that would be my pitch for the two-track presidency. Plus, it sounds like a train kind of thing. And maybe that would resonate in Delaware. <laughs> A train heavy presidency. Yeah, I, I I would agree with all that. Advertise what you're doing to people. I mean, to, to his credit, you know, Chuck Schumer came out uh, just just after the election and said that Joe Biden should forgive $50,000 of student debt for everyone. Thank you. You know, the threat of primary challengers. Thank you, Justice Democrats, for, for that. Oh, yeah. Schumer's fear of AOC is the most progressive political dynamic in this country right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, advertise what you're doing and, and try to do it. And I think, you know, just to, just to go a bit further on that, to say that I, I am weary of, of, of some of the language of unity, which I get, you know, some of the appeal of that people are tired after Donald Trump, we want the country to come together. Sure. But I really think it would, it would serve Democrats pretty well to, really sell this green populist agenda, sell the fact that, you know, people are going to get jobs. We're going to create millions of jobs, you know, building the clean energy future, uh, you know, to, to, to get ourselves on the right track after COVID recover from this horrible recession and show that Mitch McConnell is standing in the way of that. Show that the Republican party is the barrier to your life getting better. I mean, it's not going to be hard to do. That's probably what's going to happen is that there will be sort of ambitious legislative proposals that Mitch McConnell will shut down. So rather than sort of pre, you know, uh, pre-compromising with Mitch McConnell, like there needs to be a little bit of conflict. And, and Joe Biden, obviously, throughout his career has not been someone who is comfortable with conflict. But that's where, you know, I hope that people like Jamal Bowman and, and AOC and, and Bernie Sanders can, can really up the ante and just, you know, really bring on a fight because it's going to be a fight either way uh, to, to, to navigate out of this crisis, these many, many crises uh, uh, adequately, much less equitably. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I would add, you know, I think, you know, it fortunately won't just be the squad, Bernie, their allies, the DSA is cruising towards a hundred thousand members at the end of the year. That's maybe the most hopeful political story of the fall. It's a huge, I mean, to have a, a movement of 100,000 members 
that's politically disciplined and focused and serious that is not dependent on foundations for funding, but is dues funded uh, is, is enormous. You know, that's, that's in some ways comparable to the labor movement. It's dues funded. It's not funded by foundations that allows for stability and autonomy that is extremely um, precious. Honestly, it's a precious resource um, politically. And so I think you will see folks like DSA. I think hopefully Sunrise will be flexing its muscles. Um, Sunrise, I think probably their biggest political leverage is the threat to primary um, and their ability to do electoral mobilization. So that hopefully means in the lead up to 2022 that they are throwing their weight around. So that, you know, and DSA has gotten better at primarying, very good at primarying in a lot of, in a lot of states. So I don't know that, I guess that maybe would be a sign of optimism. I mean, in other words, like that the squad, the DSA, Sunrise, um, the movement for black lives and others will all be giving the talking points that the Biden administration could just download from Twitter, uh, if they're up for it. Um, I do want to ask you, Kate, on this, you know, you just wrote this great piece uh, based on an interview, I think, or in part on an interview with Reed Hunt. And um, I think one of the things you said in the piece uh, is that Reed Hunt suggests is you don't have to just have one priority at a time, but you have to kind of have a blowout where you just come flying out of the gate with a number of different priorities, you know, speaking to your entire political base. And I, I, I'd love to hear you just speak a little bit more about that, because I think we are making a case for um, a very loud, brash, kind of like multiplicitous <laughs> conversation um coming out of the out of the new um white house team and that that goes against some of the grain of political wisdom from the obama admin yeah i got to talk to reed hunt which uh was was uh kind of exciting if you have listened to the show before daniel and i have talked before about his book a crisis wasted so reed hunt was on the clinton and obama transition team's former fcc commissioner and wrote this book, A Crisis Wasted, about the Obama transition and just how many mistakes were made uh, in, in, in December of, of 20, 2008 before Obama even took office. And, and like you were mentioning, you know, he really nails into a couple of points, one being do not worry about the deficit. Larry Summers worried endlessly about the deficit. Tim Geithner, you know, Obama's top advisors all, you know, were, were, were deficit hawks in, in, in some way, shape or form. Maybe not all of them, but, but that was definitely the prevailing attitude. And it was destructive, right? I mean, they all regret it now. Uh, basically, every economist who advised him that way, even uh, the, 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 the big boss himself, Larry Summers, uh, have, have, you know, taken a much softer stance on, on deficit spending uh, in, in the years since the, the recession. So number one, do not worry about the deficit, especially, you know, when we've just seen uh, the Republicans spend a whole lot of money on, on various things. And uh, not to sequence, uh, sequence, you know, priorities. There was this whole sort of worked out, very West Wing type theory of, of how the Obama administration would play out, which is that they would tackle the economic crisis and then they would get to climate change and healthcare and immigration reform and climate change just didn't happen, right? <laughs> we just didn't get the bill, right? Uh, the There are many theories about why the cap and trade bill in 2009 failed, Waxman-Markey, um, but, but you know, a, a, a big one that, that uh, a lot of folks are still sort of smarting from in, in D.C. is that the Obama administration just lost interest. And, and you know, I, I have a lot of quibbles with, with that bill itself, but the substance was, of it was that the administration just was not committed to climate policy. And so uh, Reed Hunt's suggestion is to just do it all, do it all out of the gate, 
put it all out on the table and, and really go out and make the case for it to to the people. Uh, really, you know, lay out what you want to do, what you want your first hundred days to look like, and and don't you know say something's going to come later when something very well may not come later, uh, which which we've seen from stimulus debates so far. Um, so I, I thought it was great. Everyone should read Reed's book, <laughs> Crisis Wasted. Uh, I think it's just going to be very instructive uh, in, in in the weeks to come. And, and, you know, just to loop back to the other big lesson, which we talked about at the start of the show, do not surround yourself with the people who cause the crisis, right? Do not surround yourself with with ghouls who, you know, are, are have, have absolutely no interest in a egalitarian agenda. 100%. I, I completely agree with that. And the one quick, you know, following back up onto that New Deal point, right? Part of what makes the New Deal work as well as it does um, is that FDR is experimental, throws out a lot of things, and the things that actually worked best were the most, generally speaking, the most economic populist. Um, and so, yeah, Biden should throw a bunch out there. And who knows? We'll find out, right? Maybe the movement for Black Lives will just grow and grow and grow, and that will define uh, the administration. Maybe the climate justice movement will really... Uh, cohere around a bold green economic stimulus plan, and they'll do the legwork on the on the ground. Um, labor movement, you name it. Like, there's just nothing to lose throwing out really popular policies, trying to mobilize around them, and to some degree, democracy could could work. Right? Folks will will mobilize, groups will mobilize, groups like the DSA will mobilize and build support for what are probably going to be the best, most impactful policies and you know, working class communities and communities of color. And that's, you know, you need that feedback loop because um, the change isn't going to come from the top. It's going to come from the bottom. But yes, it obviously needs federal rulemaking. It obviously needs federal investment. Um, I think we have to, um, we have to say a word about this question of the coup before we we close out, um, Kate. Um, and, you know, I guess I would just kick that off by saying, like, I'm not, fully convinced we're going to get a coup. I do think what we're basically seeing is Trump's best effort to domesticate American foreign policy, to teach Americans what it looks like to live in a country that has a U.S. embassy in it already. Um, in this case, a relatively bumbling and ineffective U.S. embassy, but that's basically the concept is to overturn an election. Um, I don't think Trump will succeed. Um, the, the deep state is probably not really into this coup. Um but I, I don't know. I mean, I think a couple lessons. One is that, you know, if Bernie had won by a razor thin margin, I don't know what would have happened. Um, and I think that tells us something about the fragility, actually, of, of U.S. democratic institutions and their bias uh, and their biases. But I think the other thing is, you know, that Trump, what Trump, I think, is doing is really seriously undermining a basically belief in liberal democracy among a huge number of uh, Republican voters. And it probably does set up what I think you and I have both been expecting anyways, but adds fuel to that fire of a 1930s-like battle between forces on the right and the left in which liberal democratic norms and institutions are relatively less and less important. Um, And I think that means that to fight the right from a kind of liberal norm center ground is pretty hopeless. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that lesson has really come through. There's an interpretation of Biden's victory as, a, as the victory of these liberal d- democratic norms. But I think that's probably more like the coyote who's like run off the cliff and his legs are still moving. I'm, I'm very, very 
worried are, is the left big enough, strong enough now to kind of stand on its own feet and, and fight the right on a terrain where we don't expect Washington bureaucrats to settle things in our favor? Yeah, I mean, and we, we, we talked about the New Deal before, and I don't, I don't really want to harp on that too much because we haven't, you know, <laughs> we haven't talked about the, the many, many flaws of the New Deal. But part of why that happened was because there were a lot of people who were deeply worried about, about democracy uh, in, in a pretty fundamental way as, you know, Hitler rose to power, as there were dictatorships in Italy. Um, there were a lot of worrying signs that, that you know, liberal democratic norms were not uh, so stable. They were not, you know, just a fact you could assume about modern societies. Uh, so, you know, I, I would agree with you uh, definitely that, that I, I don't think uh, Trump is going to succeed in this attempted coup. I mean, he tried different coups in different countries and this administration and, and failed. You know, uh, Juan Guaido is, is not, you know, the the leader of Venezuela right now. Um, Certainly not. <laughs> so, you know, this is like a, a next level. This would be a really next level coup for, for, for him to pull off. And then I don't think they've, they've shown themselves capable of that. That's not to say it's not something to be worried about. But I, I also think this is really, you know, people talk about Trump is the product of, of the Republican Party. And I think there has been a very, very strong anti-democratic strain in, in the Republican Party for a very, very long time uh, that, 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 that really sort of is threatened by the idea um, specifically of a multiracial democracy, right? Uh, specifically that, uh, that there could be, you know, uh, people who represent the vast majority of this country who are making decisions. And every time uh, there have been, you know, flourishings of, of democracy, more people sort of entering into the democratic process, that's been deeply threatening to uh, to the people who fund the Republican Party and, and the people whose interests they represent. Uh, and, and, and so I think that's just a, a deeper thing to reckon with and that I also uh, worry about as, as Democrats try to spin what happened on, on Tuesday and, and, and Biden's victory as this sort of triumph of Democratic norms and liberal institutions, where I, I don't think they're they're you know particularly uh, at at their best place right now, and and going after the real anti-democratic ethos that has informed the right broadly, and and including the expressions of the right that show up in the Democratic Party, um, you know I, I I just think there needs to be a real a, a real argument made for for. A real democracy, and I don't think that that happens by leaning on things like the Supreme Court and 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 you know this sort of vague talk of, of institutions. I think that you know happens by empowering small D democratic majorities uh, and 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 you know making the case that that people actually have a right to decide their own future, uh, which I I don't see being forcefully made um, by by the the Biden administration, and that's deeply worrying. No, I think that's right. I think if I could chant something a bit goofy, maybe or not, if there's like three major squads in American political life, there's the Jews will not replace us squad, which is currently in the White House. There is the neoliberal zombie squad, which is heading into the White House, you know, with with some representatives from uh, from the left, but largely a neoliberal zombie squad, I think. And then there is the multiracial democracy squad, is which is what you were just describing as well, I think. Um, and 
I don't think the neoliberal zombie squad is in a position to win this decade. Um, but I do think that the Jews will not replace the squad, the multiracial democracy squad. I think those are going to be the two major contending forces. Um, you brought up the Supreme Court, and that's undoubtedly the next big thing that's going to come, right? We'll have like the Tea Party 2.0 plus QAnon, but this time the court will be very central uh, in addition to just stimulus and racism from before. Um, the sacredness of the Constitution will be invoked every second of every single day, at least for the next decade, possibly for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I, I mean, I just think the way you put it there, Kate, is, is, is so right, which is that at the end of the day, what is at stake is is democracy in a pretty like conventionally robust sense, which is just most people getting to decide the contours of their political and economic life. And um, right now, that's a position, I think, as you say, that n- no major entity that is powerful um, in an institutional sense is articulating. Um, it's not a lot to ask that that be the dominant political framework of a country of a country but i think you're right that it's going to be a huge fight to make it the dominant political framework of this country yeah and just to wrap i guess on a (laughs) on a slightly positive note i mean i do i do think crises make things possible um obviously the 2008 crisis did not usher in the end of neoliberalism i don't think it's (laughs) a foregone conclusion that COVID-19 is going to usher in the end of neoliberalism either. Um, but I, I do think there there's a real opening to think bigger. You know, uh, however constrained I think some of the straightforward electoral paths might be at this moment, um, I, I, I do think there is a real appetite for for something big and, and, and what form that takes. I, I think we have yet to see, but, you know, having more people like, AOC and Jamal Bowman in Congress having a DSA, a hundred thousand people strong almost. I think those are those are real causes for hope. And if I'm putting my chips anywhere, it's with them and not with uh, the neoliberal zombie squad. Yeah, that's right. I mean, nobody expected the Spanish Inquisition, right? <laughs> <laughs> nobody expected Occupy Wall Street. Nobody expected Black Lives Matter. Nobody expected the resurgence of Black Lives uh, Matter. Nobody expected the Bernie campaign of 2016 to exist. One of those no one expected not like the other to be. Uh... That's right. Yes. Um, that's right. Yeah. No, the Bernie campaign and Occupy had a lot of differences. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I think you're referring to the Spanish Inquisition. I, I, I was. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I'm not going to start making good jokes. That's not going to, even the crisis isn't going to make that happen. But, but yeah, I mean, we don't, so, I mean, it would actually at this point, 10, you know, about almost 10 years after Occupy Wall Street, I guess nine and a half, nine and nine and change, it would be insane not to expect another eruption of, of revolts. I mean, they keep happening and and to your point, yeah, I mean, it's great. We have political representation now, incredibly charismatic people, you know, not just Bernie now, but the squad ref- reflecting the multiracial um, working class. Maybe it is also to some benefit that they probably won't be in the White House and in the cabinet. And that will give a bit more freedom of maneuver to the le- elected left um, to interact with and to kind of feed off of what will need to be a, a big, 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 big left in the streets. And the hope for that big, big left explosion in the streets is pretty reasonable. It's pretty realistic. All it would take is a continuation of the trend of the last um, of the last few years. So I don't know, Kate, maybe you are um, maybe you are teaching me to be an optimist again in 2020. Wow, I'm so honored. <laughs> well, on that optimistic note, 
this has been a, a special episode of Hot and Bothered. Daniel, stay hot. Stay bothered. Stay optimistic. Ha <laughs> ha